Welcome to the next episode of our podcast on negotiation. And today we have a very special guest, Hans, Hans van den Berg. Uh, Hans, great to have you with us. Great to be here. Hans is a, um, is a passionate negotiator, um, someone who spent a lot of time, a lot of time uh, thinking and rethinking diplomacy, and also someone who has founded the Young Diplomat, um, an organization that we will spend uh, some time discussing later on in our podcast episode. Uh, but um, let us start with, uh, with the beginnings, Hans. How did it all start for you? What was your first uh, uh, triggering moment uh, when you decided, hey, this diplomacy slash negotiation thing makes a lot of sense and that's what I, what I want to focus on? How far back do we want to go? Um, as far as you wish. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, I think that the first time I actually uh, got triggered when it comes to negotiation was actually in my first job, which uh, had nothing to do with international relations or anything. But um, I worked for a project developer here in uh, The Hague, and we were building uh, Hilton Garden Inn in Leiden, uh, which is a city close by. And um, as you may uh, or can imagine, Hilton is not the easiest brand when it comes to uh, building new things. They want things done to a very particular standard. Um, and that was also the case for us. Um, but our budget was not endless. So we had to negotiate between what they wanted and what we could actually deliver. And second to that, they set some really weird guidelines that made absolute sense in the US, but not in the Netherlands. Um, so, yeah, that was my first experience with negotiation. And it really triggered me into thinking, like, how does this go? And why is it that sometimes we are successful and sometimes we are not successful? Like, is there a reason for it? And it wasn't until, I think, six, seven years later that I got into a class at university for my master's degree where I got re-triggered on the negotiation part. We had a class on um, uh, international uh, problems and international challenges. And there was Paul Meertz, uh, and he is a great negotiation trainer. Um, and uh, he just basically gave us a, a really, really quick sort of workshop in that. And I got super interested and I was like, this is what I want to do more. And that's how the ball got rolling. And now we're here. <laughs> exactly. So, and uh, um, um, tell us a little bit more about what you're doing now. I've uh, I've read in your on your on your profile, um, and uh, I learned from our earlier conversations that you are involved in uh, super exciting projects dealing dealing with diplomats uh, uh, around the world. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about this work and maybe your favorite uh, uh, favorite project in whatever meaning of this of this word you choose to uh, to interpret it. Yeah, so um, picking favorites is always difficult because you're going to disappoint somebody. So I hope not all of my colleagues are listening in and that the colleagues of whom I'm working on projects that I'm not going to mention now are going to think like, oh God, he doesn't like our project. Um, so basically I have one main job and one a little bit smaller job. Uh, my main job is with the Center for International Legal Corporation here in The Hague. Um, and it's an organization that focuses on developing and supporting the development of the rule of law and strengthening the rule of law in uh, all kinds of different regions of the world. Um, we started out with a focus on Indonesia, which is a former colony of the Netherlands, uh, and the government uh, felt the obligation to uh, give support to uh, the country when it got independence. 
but from there, when the wall fell, there was a great surge of projects in Eastern Europe, the former Balkans. Uh, we also now have projects in the Middle East, in Africa, in South America. Uh, but even within the European Union, we also work in Austria. Um, so we really work on all kinds of different uh, regions and countries. Um, and the projects that I do really differ, go from one side to completely the other side when it comes to international law and the rule of law. Um, just to give an example of how different things are, uh, in one project in Ukraine, we are working on probation and uh, alternative sanctions, as well as supporting the judiciary in uh, their development of court guidelines, communicating with the public and making it more clear what they're doing inside the courtroom to the public, towards the complete other side of the spectrum where I'm working on counterterrorism strategies in North Macedonia. Um, and this is actually also one of my favorite projects, the counterterrorism project in North Macedonia. Unfortunately, last week we had our last mission uh, on the project and in Skopje. But um, it was really, it was a project that I sort of, it, it, it was my first workday at Silk where I um, uh, got to go to Skopje. Immediately my first day, I was going on a plane to Skopje to do a, a session with a public prosecutor from the Netherlands about how in the Netherlands they're prosecuting and preventing uh, uh, counterterrorism and uh, alleged uh, victims, alleged um, uh, criminals and all these kind of things. For me, it was like, what, what is this project? What is happening? And then it was handed over to me and a colleague and we were both sitting down and thinking like, what is this? What do we do with this? She was a human rights lawyer. I am an international relations expert. Terrorism wasn't really something in our book. Um, and then we started working on it and it actually was super awesome to work because um, the beneficiary, the uh, North Macedonian Counterterrorism Council, was really interested and really wanted to learn. They came to The Hague to visit the Ministry of Justice, to visit the courts, to visit uh, several uh, institutions that we have here that are unique to the Netherlands on how we deal with counterterrorism and extreme violence. Um, they visited uh, uh, NGOs that are situated here that deal with international counterterrorism. And then after that, we had talks about how they were developing their strategies in North Macedonia, both nationally and regionally in the Balkan region. And I was just feeling like, OK, but then we are really making an impact. And you could see in their strategy and in their focus points that they were moving from just jihadism to also the uh, extreme right. They were moving towards preventing instead of only tracking down and uh, uh, prosecuting. So also developing prevention strategies. Uh, they got interested into our municipal approach in the Netherlands, which uh, turned out that they weren't really aware of what was going on in their own municipalities. And then the NZTV, so the National Coordinator for Counterterrorism, got in touch with their probation workers, with their uh, municipalities, and they started to better understand what was happening there. And you just really feel like within this project, we had an impact. We made a change. We made a difference. We connected them to valuable institutions in the Netherlands, and we helped them develop what they're doing there. And yeah, it's just that makes you really giddy, but also just really enthusiastic about what you're doing yourself. 
And what you said, yeah, you have to sort of then deal in a diplomatic way also with all the tensions that are going on. You're not sure if, you know, certain things that are being mentioned uh, can be mentioned. Um, there is certain information that they want on the Macedonian side, but then the Dutch are not allowed to give that out. Um, so you have to really mediate between the two and sometimes also within the country itself between the different institutions. So it's, uh, that's... Uh, Yes, that's super interesting. I've been uh, uh, listening to it uh, super, uh, very attentively. And Hans, uh, you also have a secret life, right? I mean, uh, you are a superhero with two lives, right? One is uh, one is the one are one is uh, the, the, the sort of the development projects on the, on the legal or diplomatic uh, diplomatic part, but you also work with young people on uh, um, on their passion for uh, for diplomacy or bringing up their skills or developing their skills in terms of. Uh, in terms of preparing them for um, uh, for foreign services, uh, tell us a little bit more about the young diplomat, yeah? about its yeah. mission and about its origins uh, and where it's heading. So, where it's heading is a very good question, and um, it was uh, I think uh, yesterday that I was sending out to our group chat with everybody that is working at the young diplomat um, that we now have more than five thousand followers on LinkedIn, and um, it was sort of for me like. Um, okay, back in December 2018, I thought up this thing called the Young Diplomat, and I just wanted to take a chance with it and see what it would become. And now it is what it is. And we're doing a great range of different things. And as you said, we work with a lot with young people who are either still doing their studies or have just finished up their studies and want to um, specialize, want to uh, get a general insight of what is going on. But what I find also really, really awesome, and that's why for me, the young diplomat has nothing to do with age of where you are in life, but rather with how your passion or your, your interest is. We also have people who want to switch jobs. So who want to move from one field to another and are actually in their 50s and still follow a course at the young diplomat because they want to experience and see what diplomacy is about. We have people who are just want to get to know more about diplomacy in general and are actually biologists or uh, scientists and just want to have something else uh, for a change. So this is really inspirational for me. I love working with uh, young people um, for the very simple reason that what they their, their passion and their interest and they have this unique perspective on what is going on in the world and they just constantly bring something new to the table and every time I have a discussion and therefore all of my classes and all of the workshops that I do is of course I'm telling a little bit about what is negotiation what is diplomacy what are the basics but as soon as I can I want to get into discussions because I want to hear their perspectives and their ideas and nine out of ten times it changes how I think or view the world in general and that's for me, that's really what it is about and why we're doing this. Um, to tell a little bit about the origin and why I started The Young Diplomat, and this is probably going to sound very uh, familiar to a lot of people who are going to be listening to this, is that the moment I graduated, which was 2017, um, I was really interested in doing something more with diplomacy, with negotiation. I wanted to become better. I wanted to be more educated, I wanted to develop myself, get this, you know, uh, resume that was really good to apply for jobs that were out there in the field. 
Um, so I started looking for extra opportunities and I soon found out that if I want to do those extra opportunities, I better bring a big bag of money with me. Because if you want to follow even a three-day course on diplomacy, you're probably paying somewhere between 1,500 and 3,000 euros. Um, and um, I am lucky enough that I'm born in the Netherlands, that I have parents that had a sort of savings account of which they were willing to borrow me some money to pursue my passion. Um, and they said, whenever you're ready, start paying us back. But the reality is that the majority of the world out there does not have that opportunity. And already in the Netherlands, that's an issue. Um, and the Netherlands is a well-off country. Imagine if we're actually talking about the um, global south. That region just doesn't have the same opportunities as we have. And it started actually to irritate me that there are organizations out there who say like, oh, yeah, but we offer you a scholarship and then you can come. Yeah, but you still have to spend time in The Hague, which is a massively expensive city, and find a place to stay and pay for your food and do all kinds of things. So that's nice that you're saying that, but nobody is going to travel to London or to the United States of America on a scholarship to then be there and they won't be able to pay their rent. And secondly, they might want to do that, but then figure out that that's not their passion or they wanted to do something else and they have shot their opportunity. Maybe they just want to explore it a little bit. So I thought I have now a large network of experts and people who can give these kind of trainings. Let me just take a chance and just see if I can set up a summer school for a hundred euros and see if I can get that off the ground. And we did. Funny note is that some of the applicants who were selected actually withdrew their application because they said, this can't be true. These experts will never for this amount of money be talking at your event. So I think you're a fraud and you're trying to steal my money. So in the very first year of our summer school, we had people thinking that we were actually trying to frame them. Um, but in the end, we had, I think it was 18 participants, which was absolutely amazing. Uh, we had a great time here in The Hague. The next year, COVID hit. And unfortunately, we had to go digital. But by doing that, we discovered that a lot of our training and a lot of our education can also happen online, which enables, again, a whole new uh, group of people to have access to this knowledge. So when it comes to our mission, what we're trying to achieve is really make this field of negotiation and diplomacy accessible to everybody who has an interest in it. And we try to do that by keeping the costs of our courses as low as possible so that people really have the opportunity to take part in our sessions, in our summer schools, in our um, uh, seminars that we're organizing. Um, and on the other hand, we try also to, even for those that can't pay that tuition fee, we try to get scholarships, especially now that we're moving back to doing things in person. Of course, we want to do our summer school again in person. We did it last year. We want to do it again this year. Um, but that means that there are people going to be out there that can't travel to The Hague to come and follow the summer school, which is not our mission. So we are working on scholarships for that. But besides that, we do keep our programs also digital. So our winter seminars are always digital to ensure that there is accessibility for anybody who wants to take part. And I think that is for the Young Diplomat the most important thing that we're trying to do. 
are trying to keep things accessible. We work with partners that make the field of diplomacy accessible. We're working with the uh, Embassy of Kosovo here in the Netherlands. We're doing once every quarter uh, coffee with ambassadors. It's completely free of charge. Anybody can come and we invite ambassadors to talk openly about their view of the world. And it's not a lecture from their side. We really want students to engage with the ambassadors to really have a coffee with them, not just, you know, this big session where a hundred students sit in a room and talk or see a panel talk, but really have like 20 students in a room, five ambassadors to make sure it's a discussion. So yeah, that's a bit about the young diplomat and my secret life. <laughs> yes, uh, that's where you wear. Uh, that's when you wear your cape, right? Uh, that's uh, that's when when you reveal your true identity. So uh, Hans, uh, if um, by the way, amazing work. Uh, I'm super uh, super happy to have you uh, have you here um, on our on our show today, so that uh, you know people can hear about it, so uh, that our listeners listeners and viewers can can get engaged as well with uh, with your work with the young diplomat. Uh, and assuming that it's the case, if someone is uh, listening or watching uh, to us uh, today uh, and is thinking, well, oh, this whole thing, uh, this whole young diplomat sounds really cool, eh? what he or she should do? So um, there are several things, but one thing is definite that you uh, should do is follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram. So on LinkedIn, as I already said, we have more than 5,000 followers, but we want even more. Um, but yeah, follow us on LinkedIn because basically there we make the announcements when we open up the next courses. Uh, we will be opening up uh, applications for a summer school of this year by the end of this month. In contrast to what we've been doing in the previous years, which was that we would organize a summer school at the beginning of July, we will now be organizing a summer school at the end of August. This is because the Young Diplomat is still young and developing as an organization. We just want to try out what happens when we organize these kind of things in different uh, moments in the year. But we also understood from some of our participants that early July is not always possible for them because of education, school, and so on and so on. So we move it to August, see what happens, see if this makes it more accessible to people. Hopefully it will. Um, and this year we will be focusing on uh, gender and inclusivity within diplomacy, a completely new field. Well, not that new, but new to the spotlight because it hasn't been talked about a lot. And we have some very interesting speakers lined up uh, to talk about that. We have uh, somebody who is working actually on the uh, feminist foreign policy in the Netherlands uh, to give uh, her talk about it. And what she has to say, I can only say, is going to be very interesting. So if listeners are interested, follow us on LinkedIn. We'll announce there when the applications open and keep an eye out on our website, youngdiplomat.org, which is easy to find. Awesome. Yes, uh, I hope I hope you guys, uh, you guys um, uh, will get a lot of applications, a lot of inquiries and uh, new users uh, after our show. Um, um, I was thinking about, uh, about uh, Hans, about one thing. You, you spoke about... Uh, about challenges, right? Uh, so one is access to uh, good quality education, right? Because let's face it, uh, not everybody is fortunate enough uh, to be able to, to to get admitted to the School of uh, Foreign Relations, uh, um, and even there, right? Uh, 
um, things are being taught probably the same way they had been for the last, I don't know, decades, uh, right? So um, apart from the access to education, access to skill development, what are what are other challenges that you guys are addressing explicitly or implicitly through uh, the young diplomats that young potential diplomats are facing today? Yeah. So it's this is definitely my belief. I mean, not everybody has to share this view with me, but I really think that in education and in training, I can tell you a great deal of things, but as you can see behind me, there's a massive bookcase with, a lot of books in there that also talk about negotiation and diplomacy. And if you want to know anything, you can read a book about it. I can tell you about it, but you can also read a book about it. And what I tell you is basically what is in the book. So that's not really going to be that much different. Um, I'm always happy when people hire me to do so because, you know, that gives me an income and gets me to pay the house and the new books that I want to buy. But um, basically what I'm telling, you can find in the articles that I wrote or you can find in the books that are in my uh, book covered, but also that you can buy yourself. So where I think this all makes a difference is that we, especially the young diplomat, but I know other negotiation trainers do the same thing. We work a lot with simulations because simulations really give you the ability to test your uh, skills, to test new things that you've learned. I mean, you can read about it as much as you want, but in the end, the proof is in the pudding. Um, and as my, I, I'm a former competitive rower and my coach, uh, once, uh, we sat down and she asked me, what is your dream? And I said, I want to go to the Olympics and everybody has told me that I am very talented rower, so I can go to the Olympics. She was like, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, just take a note of this. There are people at the Olympics who are completely untalented rowers. Um, and there are people not at the Olympics, which are the most talented rowers in the world. The thing is, the people who are untalented are willing to train and put every day all the hours of training into it. And the people who are talented are unwilling to do so and are stuck with one particular thing that they know. And I think this is the difference in what our educational system, whether it's the young diplomat or how we develop other educational systems, uh, can do. With simulations, we can train. But the other thing I think that's important that we do at the Young Diplomat and what I also see others doing is really learning to learn. So, I mean, whatever is in this bookcase, whatever I'm going to be telling you, and I, we could have a nice discussion about how negotiation currently theory says that it functions, it will be absolute in 10 years. Um, I am lucky if my students remember even one sentence I spoke in about three or four years during my class. Um, but the one thing that I hope they do remember is the way they absorb new information, process that information and apply that information in their daily lives. And as long as they are doing that, I'm happy. And as long as they are getting to know each other and learning about each other's perspectives, because the only way you're going to understand how somebody from Africa views the world is talking to somebody from Africa. You can read about it as much as you want, but it's never going to tell you how it actually is. So you need to talk to them. And if our educational programs, whether it is with the Young Diplomat or what we do at Leiden University or at Erasmus University or at the diplomatic academies that we work at, we can achieve that. I'm done. I can walk out and I don't need to return. Well, actually, I hope to return the next year to do that for a new group of students and people who are interested. But then for that group... I'm happy. 
That's awesome. Uh, that's a great mission. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm deeply amazed. Uh, uh, Hans, uh, thank you so much for sharing this super inspiring. I was um, 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 in our previous conversation, you mentioned that uh, you also teach a course which, which uh, triggered my interest or inspired my interest and triggered my attention. And that is the course uh, called the Battle of Europe. Yeah. Uh, could you maybe share a few words about uh, what you teach? What is the what are the pedagogical objectives of that course, and also how you do that? Yes, it's a part yeah. of uh, the Young Diplomat, right? Yeah, that's true. So this is a course that um, Leiden University actually requested. Um, they wanted to do a course about the European Union, but wanted to do something different because the normal courses always teach something about the history of the European Union or how it works, or you know, all this kind of boring stuff. Um, and this is an honors college. These are students who actually want to learn a little bit more. They want to learn something different than the normal kind of stuff. So um, they said, like, Hans, do you have an idea? And I was like, well, I can always come up with ideas. That's not the problem. But we have to see what works and what people are interested in. Um, and I just finished reading a book in Dutch. The title is The Slag om Europa, which translates to The Battle for Europe. Um, and it's written by Rob de Wijk, and it's, it's a really good book. There will be an English translation. And it basically gave me the inspiration because he wrote in his book as a, a final chapter that he has absolutely no doubt that the future of the European Union is bright. And yes, there are many challenges, but that it is going to be better than it already is and that there are a lot of opportunities out there. And I was like, that's actually quite interesting. Let's take a different approach to teaching about the European Union. And instead of looking back and looking at all the different challenges that we have had, let's look forward to all the opportunities that we can have and how it is developing. So in the setup of the course, we've just chosen to do something completely different. Um, and in the first class, we're going to uh, kick things off by actually nation branding the European Union. So what are the unique selling points? What are the things that they can do to improve the world and make the world a better place? And this is with the inspiration of Simon Anhold, who said and founded the Good Country Index. Uh, and with that, he basically said, we want to look at what countries do good for the rest of the world. So how happy should the world be that this country exists? And I want the students to really look into how happy should the world be that the European Union exists? What kind of opportunities does it offer? We're also going to redesign the European Union. So they're going to take it in a completely different direction. If you could redo the European Union, how would you do it? What would you do different? How would you maybe design the whole thing differently? Maybe you would kick some countries out. Maybe you would actually include some other countries. Who knows? Maybe the founders will be completely different founders. Maybe the Netherlands will have a completely different say in things because, well, the Netherlands is just being really obstructive and a nuisance right now. So maybe they're thinking up ways to mitigate that. Um, besides that, we're going to have uh, guest speakers. Um, we're going to make an historical comparison uh, between uh, the... Uh, uh, um, uh, the empires of old, uh, the Austrian Empire, the French Empire and the European Union, like what are the comparisons? Can they compare? Is the dissolution of the Austrian Empire or the French Empire going to predict the dissolution of the European Union or not? Um, we're going to have guest speakers who are going to talk about what the current challenges are to the European Union, but also the opportunities. Um, one of my favorite uh, guest speakers, uh, Mendeltje van Keulen, 
um, who is uh, in her last session actually surprised me by saying, I'm very anti-European Union. However, it's my work and I study it. Um, and I think it's really interesting. And then she goes on a super inspirational rant about what the European Union does, what kind of opportunities there are and how it functions. So we're really going to explore all these different kind of subjects in a very different way. And the end result hopefully will be that the students can formulate a new perspective on the future of the European Union. And I think that will be amazing to hear these young people minds about what the future of this union can be, because already between me and them, there's 15 years. And I do hope that they have a different view on it than I have. And I'm very curious to learn more about that. Wow, that's an amazing, uh, amazing uh, program, curriculum and lineup. Uh, uh, I hope this, uh, if someone was still hesitating, I hope this was the, uh, this was the last argument to convince, uh, to convince potential applicants. Uh, guys, if you're listening or watching us today, um, get your resumes ready. And the I think the application, you guys will open for applications end of March. Is that correct? Yeah, end of March for a summer program. And uh, we will be also running these type of programs in the near future as well with the Young Diplomat. So we will be opening up them somewhere during this year. Awesome. Yes. Uh, hope everything is noted. The deadlines are noted. Uh, uh, let's move on with our next question. Um, uh, so what are the... Uh, um, what, how, would you, how would you inspire... Uh, individuals, young students, those of uh, taking your classes to uh, to become diplomats. Is it something that uh, is it uh, is it a calling? Is it a job? Is it something that uh, uh, how does desire how does the desire to become a diplomat uh, uh, develop in, in 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 young people? How would you if you were to develop it? What would you do? Well. <laughs> I would say that if if you have the desire, you're definitely um, uh, somebody who likes to hurt themselves because you will be uh, doing long hours and you will not get the uh, pay for it. So if you're in it for the money, get out because the money is not that good. You can better go work for the big corporations and they will pay you a lot better to do sort of the same job. So you do need to have a real passion for trying to make the world a better place. I do believe that anybody who starts working in diplomacy has this inherent desire for making the world a better place. Um, I have that from a very young age together with a huge sense of justice. I just can't bear it when I see injustice in the world. So that's where my passion comes from. But second to that, you also need to have a little bit of lust for power because diplomacy is also about exercising power. And in the end, you have to be able to live with yourself and knowing that you gave somebody a bad deal. So you always have to, in diplomacy, also stab the other side, unfortunately, a little bit in the bag. I mean, you have to walk off with a deal that is acceptable to who you're representing and that means that there is always somebody who's being disappointed. But how do you motivate and inspire people in general about this field? I mean, it's really hard to make people understand what diplomacy does for them. I mean, ask the average Joe on the street and they will be like, yeah, diplomacy, that's, that's like the really high up smoking cigars in uh, saloons and making deals behind the curtains and in the back rooms and in the corridors. And uh, I don't understand it. And I think they're crooks. 
that's that's not true <laughs> that's not true but what i think that is really inspirational about it is that you can actually make a difference and it is a massively creative field because being able to achieve something in diplomacy you have to be able to think outside of the box and you have to have this huge arsenal of words you have to have this huge arsenal of tricks you have to be able to understand and really sense the other person. You need to be able to be sociable. You need to be able to last a long time at parties and make small talk, but at the same time, at the right moment, know when to pinpoint to actually strike a deal. And it was the um, ambassador of the Netherlands to Skopje, who during the final uh, dinner that we had last week said, I am really bummed out that people uh, banned smoking from the public buildings in which we conduct diplomacy, not only for myself, but in general, smoking and drinking wine helps because that means I can make good deals. And I was like, actually, that is true. Deals are being forged outside of the formal conference rooms. And that makes it so interesting because you're playing a really high stake game with a huge rush and reward if you are able to be at the right moment, at the right time, saying the exact right thing, and by that, closing a deal for your country or for your organization. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing this, uh, Hans. Uh, uh, what advice would you share with those uh, who are watching us and thinking, hey, is diplomacy really for me? Is it, uh, uh, shall I sign up for the Young Diplomat uh, uh, this year, or maybe I should wait till the next year? Is there, any, uh, is there any piece of advice that you could share with all those who are thinking already about uh, this career path? Yeah, so I really dislike the idea of hanging on to this one idea of having a career path because when I was young, my parents told me I wanted a candy store, which is true. When I was three or four years old, I wanted a candy store. But based on that, they said go to... Uh, your bachelor's and study hospitality management rather than history, which I actually wanted to do. Um, but uh, uh, it brought me a lot of great things. So I studied hospitality management and basically it gave me the right education to become a diplomat because it teaches you a lot about the different things that you need to do as a diplomat that nobody thinks about when you're studying international relations about etiquette, about dealing with tough situations, keeping a poker face, sensing the room, networking, all these kind of skills that are not taught at university. I was being taught during my bachelor's. So if I would give any advice is if you're interested, take a course with the Young Diplomat. We're cheap as hell. So, you know, if you are not going to go down the road, at least you tested it and you had a great time and you will learn public speaking, you will learn negotiating, which even if you're not becoming a diplomat, will serve you for the rest of your life because you're probably going to get married and your partner doesn't want to go on the same holiday as you and you will have to negotiate. Or you will get children, or maybe not, um, or you will have to deal with difficult neighbors and you will always have to negotiate something or become a diplomat or in your job, you want a career opportunity. You have to negotiate a new salary. So whatever we teach, it will serve you some at some point in life. If you're really interested in getting into the field of diplomacy, I would really advise you during your bachelor's, don't get bucked down in one specific direction. Diversify. The world is not going to go 
to shit because you didn't pick the right expertise during your bachelor's. You will have enough time. You will have to work until you're what, 70, 75? You can restart your career when you're 40, when you're 50 even, because when you're 50, you still have 20 years to go. That means that you can switch and you can do something completely different. So if you don't have the expertise now, it doesn't matter. We're going into a field of work where we will have to have different forms of expertise. Remy, you already said it when we spoke earlier. We are not looking for the experts on one particular thing anymore. We're looking for people who can quickly switch between different uh, fields of expertise. So rather than the actual knowledge, we will be looking for the actual skills. And if you're interested in being a diplomat, go for it. Just go for it. That's what I've learned in life. Try it out. If it doesn't work out, man, I worked at the tax office across the street and now I'm teaching diplomacy to people. Hey, <laughs> can give I it a shot. Yes. <laughs> exactly. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing this. Uh, very inspirational, Hans. Uh, um, and my last question is always about greatness. Yes, uh, always about greatness, great negotiators, great uh, maybe diplomats, diplomats slash negotiators. What do you think, Hans? Uh, who comes to your mind? Yeah, so the first person that immediately came to mind was Metternich. And um, this is the one time I'm going to be boring towards history, but the guy was really something else. He was really interesting because he just knew the one thing that others were just overlooking. Like all these heavy talks were going on in the palaces, in the big room, smoking cigars, drinking brandies, and everybody was having these tough negotiations. And they couldn't understand one thing. This guy Metternich had all the knowledge, had all the information. And where did he get it from? Well, because he actually talked to the servants and he actually had mistresses walking around the palace, sleeping with a lot of the other monarchs and princes of the blood who were doing the negotiations, who were freely and openly discussing matters of state before them. Because they forgot that these people have ears as well. And he was actually paying them to get that information. And I really like the guy for that simple reason. He was able to spot something that everybody else was just overlooking and he was putting it to his advantage. And if there's anything that negotiation is about, for me, it's about spotting an advantage that nobody else sees and you're putting it to your advantage yourself if you can do that if you can see those opportunities turn it around and use that to get your goals that you want to achieve yeah that's just awesome thank you so much for sharing then this uh, hans van der Beek was our guest on uh, this episode on the podcast on negotiation guys uh, please remember to sign up to register for the upcoming session the upcoming edition of the young diplomat for the summer school 2023 uh, fingers crossed. Hope everything goes well. Uh, all the best to you, Hans. Uh, and until the next time on the podcast on negotiation. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.